Jan Swafford is a composer and the author of several biographies, including most recently Mozart, The Reign of Love. This is Jan Swafford. I'm Duncan Gammy. You're listening to Dunk Tank. All right, uh, Jan, it's a pleasure to welcome you back to the show. I've really enjoyed doing stuff with you because I'm doing stuff that I've never done anywhere else. <laughs> Probably never would get a chance to. Yeah, it's, it's my pleasure. So for people who um, didn't get a chance to listen to the last episode that we did together, highly recommend it. But basically, we went through kind of a history of rock music, looked at the development of it, um, where it came from, where it went, a little bit of where it's at today. And uh, we wanted to do something similar uh, with jazz music today. So um, perhaps for people who uh, they're a little bit less familiar with jazz, uh, maybe a good way to just start this off is what, what and, and we'll explore this question throughout this episode, but what is jazz? What, what, what makes jazz jazz? Why is it a separate form of music than anything else? I hope you're okay with a long answer to that. <laughs> sure. <laughs> and part of the reason for that is jazz is one of the most extraordinary compendiums of musical influences that ever existed, even though it ended up in an enormously in a unique and singular and very tight style. I, I've compared jazz for a long time to Debussy because Debussy, out of a melange of influences, you know, from Beethoven to Wagner to Russian music and Javanese gamelan, and, you know, all these almost contradictory elements Debussy put together into the one of the most original and singular musical styles ever. It was, it was like nothing else, and yet it had roots from all over the place, including Javanese Gamelon. Jazz is like that too. Its roots clearly go back to Africa, but so many other things played into it. And so in fact, I want to start briefly with the first Black American music that was known to the general public. There had been something called minstrel, minstrelsy, minstrel shows for a long time um, that claimed to be authentic slave music. These were white people doing shows in blackface. It wasn't at all. The real authentic thing in a way came in about 1871. After the Civil War, there were some black colleges founded by white philanthropists who wanted to prove, uh, not just uplift black people, but to prove that black people were as smart as anybody else and to put it as simply as possible. And Fisk, the Fisk University had a choir that was singing classical music, but the college was running out of money and at some point, they said, why don't we sing some of our own music that we adapt in some way or other? And in a sense, what they did was to take black inflected, black music, songs, melodies, and add Western harmony to them. So jazz, So this, at the beginning of the sort of uh, 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 broad dissemination of black music was already a very particular blend of African and, and Western uh, influences, Western harmony plus black melody, to put it in a very simple way. So let's start off by playing a black spiritual. One of the, one of the famous ones, um, Go Down Moses. Um, oh, let's do go, uh, Paul Robeson. Here's Paul Robeson singing Go Down Moses, track eight, uh, there you go. 
the songs popularized by the Fisk, uh, what, what came to be called the Fisk Jubilee Singers. And it, this stuff was instantly an absolute craze. They began touring the country within a year. They toured Europe. I remember Mark Twain writing a letter about hearing the Fisk Singers in Vienna and how marvelous he thought it was and how homesick it made him. Um, and again, this was a, a combination of radically different things, African music, American, African-American music and Western harmony that nonetheless was made into an absolutely distinctive style like nothing else that's instantly recognizable. So spirituals became part of the American um, kind of musical language and, and familiar musical experience. And the next thing that happened was a rhythmic style that was based very much on African music. Now, let's go to YouTube. And I've got something up if I, yes. If you go to YouTube, look for Dale Morningstar Field Recording. So let me, this is, here's one of the things that led to both Spirit, to the spirituals and ragtime and blues, eventually jazz. A lot of this um, was, I mean, there are many kinds of music in Africa, many styles and cultures, but specifically it seems to be West African music that had a lot to do with how, what was imported into African-American, basically slave era music. And here's an example of, of traditional African uh, tribal music this is a modern recording, but I think this is a pretty traditional tune. And you hear, and this is sort of a, this is not performance music. This is celebration music. This is not done before an audience. This is everybody participating at some kind of a, uh, a festival or a ceremony. And um, you notice that the rhythm is complex, but there's a kind of sense of syncopate, what, what Westerners call syncopation, which is off the beat accents. And there is also a melodic inflection that was uh, very particular to West African music. And in essence, it, it, it is one of the essential things about the blues. And I'll go into that more later. It's a kind of rowdy thing and I absolutely love it. Here it is. Thank <laughs> you. 
forgot that it was me playing it. <laughs> <laughs> no worries. Um, what I want to point out a couple of things. There is there is a pulse underlying all this that's steady, of course, but the instruments are playing all around the pulse, what we call syncopation, and this is fundamental to African music. Secondly, the melodic influence, the melodic line has certain inflections. It's not exactly the tuning of a Western scale. You could write it in Western notation, but certain notes are slightly off from the way Western music traditionally tunes. And those are what came to be called when in Amer African-American music, blue notes. They're notes that are actually between the notes of a piano. Mm -hmm. um, and certain, uh, especially the third and um, seventh degree are uh, traditional blue notes, but you can also inflect other degree, degrees of the scale as blue notes. Is, is that the same the, as microtones? They're in effect microtones. And, it's, and what jazz and blues pianists do to represent that note that's not on the piano is to play a quick will between the two notes on the piano that is there to suggest the pitch that's in between those two notes. Mm. Um, and that's a sort of way that early jazz, uh, blues and jazz pianists instinctively found a way to represent what can be played on a, you know, you can play it on a trumpet or a, a clarinet, or you can sing a blue note, but you can't really play on a piano. So this is a way they instinctively found to represent these particular notes. Mm. Well, so jazz and uh, ragtime, and then later blues, which was very much a kind of uh, um, country folk style in the South. Uh, ragtime became, just like spirituals have become a national and finally an international craze, ragtime became a national and an international craze in the 19th century. So for that, on Spotify, why don't we go to... Um, so one of the first great ragtime um, composers and pianists, of course, was Scott Joplin, who probably didn't exactly invented it, but he brought it to its classic form in the 1890s. And his most famous and one of the founding elements of all ragtime is Maple Leaf Rag. And here is Joplin himself playing Maple Leaf Rag uh, on a piano roll, uh, which you made. Uh, the thing about piano rolls in those days was they were the only way to reproduce music. They didn't reproduce di dynamics. In other words, they couldn't play both loud. They played one, one volume all the time. But here's Joplin playing his, his most famous ragtime.
So this is, again, an amazing blend of, of influences. The, the syncopation, the offbeat, which was really a totally new style in music, uh, is African, essentially. It's superimposing rhythmic patterns on top of one another around the beat, is, is a simple way to explain it. Um, but it's played on a Western instrument, the piano. It's also using Western harmony, and it's also using march form, you know, the form of marches, which had, you know, a couple of strains and a, and a trio and things like that. Um, so this was a very big deal. One of my favorite stories was um, Johannes Brahms at a, at a party in, in Vienna in this period heard an American girl playing ragtime on banjo, and he was absolutely fascinated by it. And uh, he was talking on the telephone to a friend and he was whistling this tune and he was basically saying, you know, I'd really like to know more about this music, but I'm too old to make use of it. So I think that's it's sort of sad. <laughs> and I, knowing what I do about Brahms, I wrote a biography of it. I think he would have loved uh, ragtime and jazz and he would have understood it. He was a big fan of, of gypsy bands, which were sort of the European jazz of the time. Um, so the, this was around, and then there got to be blues, uh, which was very much a folk form, uh, very much out of the kind of popular eye. It would have been scorned by white audiences. So let's go back to the Ken Burns. A guy named Mrs. Here's some, er, some early recording of blues a tune called Soon One Morning by Mississippi Fred McDowell. various things about blues that are important. It was, a, again, a very particular form. Um, what we call 12 bar blues that always had 12 bars that had a verse form of AAB and so forth. But mainly it had the blues scale, the blues and blue notes and the blues inflection, which is basically African. And it absolutely honed in on that African inflection of the scale. And the simplest way to explain jazz, well, first of all, blues got around and there was a, um, uh, a military band. Is this actually, yeah, there's a military band uh, led by Lieutenant Jim Europe who made some early recordings. 
And Memphis Blues is one of the early recordings of that group. So this is a kind of jazz blues taken into a more public context, let's say. Europe Society Orchestra, Jim, James Reese Europe. I've actually, I know about, and I know about the James Reese Europe band, but I've never, never actually never heard this. It's really kind of amazing because you're hearing a bluesy tune, you know, the blues, the blues, um, uh, melodic inflections, blue notes, uh, but you're very much hearing ragtime rhythm, syncopated ragtime rhythm. And the simplest way to explain jazz is that it's when ragtime rhythm and blues melody came together. The simple explanation of what jazz is, is that the fusion of those two things. Um, now, one of the, and this happened in New Orleans. Uh, we don't know a lot about this period because there were not a lot of recordings. And what was, what's interesting to me is that the first jazz recordings were made by a group called the Origi Original Dixieland Jazz Band. This is 1917. Um, actually, and they were white band because black bands, uh, they were white group because white black groups weren't recorded then because of obviously racism. Black groups didn't start getting recorded into the, until the 20s. Uh, and these were, and in the 20s, these were called race records. They were made by black groups and sold in black communities only, though a lot of black jazz lovers found, you know, searched them out. Here is um, the, play some of the, let's see, the Livery Stable Blues. This is original Dixieland jazz band, a white group in 1917.
is fascinating stuff because this is classic, what we call New Orleans jazz, which is small groups playing basically a collective improvisation on a lead tune with everybody adding their own embellish embellishments based on the, on, the, on the underlying harmony. So it's improvisation on a tune and a harmony all going on together. It's a very highly developed style, which these guys clearly learned from black musicians, which means that black musicians had already created New Orleans jazz for these guys, for these white musicians to pick up in a very sophisticated way. But we don't know those bands because they weren't recorded. Does that, you see what I'm saying? Yeah, it's too bad. Oh, it's extremely too bad. So um, let's go to some early, you know, black New Orleans jazz, which was in the twenties. This is Chimes Blues by King Oliver's Creole jazz band, who was one of the first of the New Orleans bands to record. And I'll tell you something very interesting about this band when we've played a little. things about this. Um, King Oliver was a trumpet player and he was the leader of the band. There's a second trumpet player in this group, a young guy named Louis Armstrong. Mm -hmm. This is where Louis Armstrong sort of came to public attention. Uh, very soon he was off in his own as, as the first great genius of jazz. Um, and one of the ways you can tell, I'm guessing, his influence, if you, if you heard, play just a little bit, it has to do with rhythm. Play just a little bit of that um, uh, uh, livery stable blues again, just a little bit of it. Okay, to us, this sounds rhythmically a little bit stiff because they're playing more traditional kinds of da 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 Thank you. 
Okay. Rhythmically, what we're hearing there is not even eighth notes anymore. Da 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 da. We're hearing more da da do da do da 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 da. And that's that swing. That's what's called a swing rhythm, which Louis Armstrong sort of pioneered. And what's interesting, just like blue notes are notes that actually aren't on the piano, swing rhythm is neither an even eighth note nor a triplet nor the usual what musicians call three to one dotted rhythm. Da 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 da. da. It's something between. A triplet da 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 that's the swing rhythm and later was very much part of what we call the swing era which was created as much as anybody by Louis Armstrong um so and that I don't know if that came from Africa. I don't know if, if the swing, the innate swing, which you really have to feel, it, it can't really be notated very precisely. Um, I don't know if that's African or it's just something developed in African-American music. I don't know. I want to make a couple, one more point, a blanket point about all this, by the way. Yeah. These were not purely musical developments by any means. They all had to do with history and society and the position of African-Americans and the people who, who disparaged them and the people who, uh, the white people who tried, their, who tried in the 19th century starting to bring racial equality in this country. And the, and the founders of the black universities, the white founders, that was their goal by and large, racial equality. Um, and the, the Fisk Jubilee Singers, who pioneered spirituals, it was a way of saying, look, black people have a music of their own. It's quite wonderful. And basically what white culture did in the 19th century was to say, yeah, this is great music, but they still didn't like, they still disparaged black people. And that's what happened with jazz too. Mm -hmm. um, but part of, I said jazz in, in a very simple way is a combination of the melody of blues, the melodic inflections of blues, plus the rhythm of ragtime. There was another element in New Orleans, and that had to do with, there were really two kinds of black groups in New Orleans in the early part of the century. There were Creole mixed race musicians who were very sophisticated, who had little bands, and they, they were very sophisticated musicians, and they would play for white people. You know, things like, um, celebrations and weddings and things like that. They, they, were, they were mixed race bands, Creoles who played for white occasions. And these were very sophisticated musicians who read music and who would play in opera excerpts and really what have you, anything you wanted. And they played, they played a, a you know, ragtime inflected music. They could do anything, including opera. And, and by the way, Louis Armstrong was a big opera fan. Um, and then there was a rougher music that was played in black communities at rent parties and brothels and places like that, that was raw and rough and terrifically vital. And basically at a some certain point, race, racial laws were passed that kicked the Creoles out of white society entirely. So they and the black musicians got together, the other black, the more raw black bands got together and in a way, the, 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 the vitality of the, of the raw black music and the sophistication of the Creole musicians came together in this incredible fusion. And that's really what created New Orleans jazz, this remarkable group 
um, improvisation. So the next thing I want to play is, so in the, in the 20s, race records started being made by Louis Armstrong and a number of other bands. Um, and Louis Armstrong, the reason Louis Armstrong is so terrifically important is that he was an absolute virtuoso of the trumpet. And he was the first great improviser. So New Orleans jazz was based on a kind of group improvisation that had solos here and there. But with Louis Armstrong and his early bands, the Hot Five and Hot Seven, improvisation became the heart and soul of jazz. So you would have a basic tune as a foundation, its tune and its rhythm for improvisations that would be the middle of the piece. And to show you all that at once, and also the incredible virtuosity of, uh, of Louis Armstrong himself, this is one of the Hot Five recordings, West End Blues. Uh, and I've always, I always have a fantasy of, of somehow playing this piece for Brahms and watching his jaw drop, because these are things that a trumpet is not supposed to be able to do. Oh, you've got to start it loud at the beginning. Got it. Start it over.
Now, I wanted to play that whole thing because there's so much about that tune that's important. First of all, the incredible virtuosity of the beginning, which is just so effortless. Um, secondly, what you hear is scat singing in that. Um, you hear Armstrong, uh, who had a very distinctive voice that, you know, it was kind of like, it was a bit sandpapered, but that's what made it so distinctive. And when you hear him sing, you realize he plays the trumpet the same way he sings with the same inflections. <laughs> that his trumpet playing is an imitation of vocal uh, performance. And he's also doing scat singing, which he supposedly invented during a recording session when he dropped his, his music with the words and it just started singing nonsense syllables. And that was the invention of scat. Whether that really happened or not, I don't know, but that became, you know, a base of fundamental to jazz. In any case, and you realize when these recordings were made, these are acoustic recordings. You, you played the tune and they were recorded directly onto records by about 20 machines that had these funnels going into the studio. Uh, and then you would do 20 more and 20 more and 20 you would play the tune over and over and over and over again. So in practice, there's not probably that much improvisation in these recordings because you, you weren't gonna improvise a different solo every time. But Armstrong's solo later in this tune is one of the great jazz solos of all time to this day. And again, he made all the single-handedly made jazz soloists art. Um, and so now we're in the 20s. And the next development, the beginning of the swing era, and the next development had to do with a young guy named Duke Ellington, um, who, who had come up playing. Luke, Duke Ellington learned to play piano. He, somebody asked him, why did you play piano? And he said, in a very typically Duke Ellington way, because I soon learned that if you played piano, there would be a pretty girl at the end of the keyboard. Hmm. Um, and he learned to play by, and a lot of people did in those days, by following um, piano roll pianos, player pianos. You know, the, the keys would go down when you played these paper rolls in a player piano, and then you learned to follow that, and that's how you learned to play, and that's how he learned to play. And he was, he was just an absolute born genius. Um, so he was playing around and finally he got a job at the um, Cotton Club in Harlem. And this, this was very much part of the Harlem Renaissance. And so again, we have, a social, we have a social element. This was Harlem Renaissance, a renewal of black culture in Harlem. And Ellington was absolutely uh, part of that. Um, and he also began making what were at first race records made for the black community that white interested white musicians and listeners would go have to go look up. Um, and the Cotton Club Orchestra was playing um, for dancing, basically. And they had, among other things, uh, in our terms, this is, is a kind of racist thing. There was a very kind of pseudo-African overtone to all this, and they did pseudo-African stage shows and dancing with dancing and a sort of what was called the African style. Um, but Ellington's first recordings already have this in an absolutely developed way. So play East St. Louis it looks like Toodaloo, but I think it's actually pronounced Totolo, East St. Louis Totolo.
this is clearly blues, but it's a particular kind of blues that came to be called dirty. This is dirty blues. Uh, and this trumpet player, Bubber, Bubber Miley, was the great master of, of you, you would take a bathroom plunger and put it over your mute. And that was Wah Wah Trumpet. Um, he, was, he was a great trumpet player who was unfortunately busily drinking himself to death at the age of 19, but he was replaced by Cooter, Cootie Williams and the, and the Ellington Band, who was another great Wah Wah player and played dirty stuff. Um, and again, this is, this is the kind of music that European composers like Maurice Ravel and Darius Mio were hearing in black clubs in New York and were tremendously blown away by. Um, that's, this is why Maurice Ravel said jazz is the greatest musical creation of the 20th century. And some of his later music is very much influenced by jazz. And Darius Mio wrote, um, the first jazz-based um, orchestra piece, it was actually ballet, called Creation du Monde, Creation of the World. Um, another, so this was beginning to get into white culture as well. I mean, white culture absolutely embraced jazz by the 20s. The 20s was the jazz age, that's what we call it. And this was very much a, a white as well as a black thing. So they were embracing the music without, while meanwhile racism, legal, terrible racism and lynching and the whole, the whole terrible show was still very much going on. And, and as famous as Ellington got in the 20s and 30s worldwide, you still couldn't stay in white hotels. And you know, black musicians had to, had to stay in you know, the room with people when they were traveling. They were always under a certain amount of threat. And yet, and black and white musicians began to pick this up in, in various ways. Um, and one of the people who did, who was founded, was a, a white trumpet player named Bix Beiderbeck, who was a great player also involved in drinking himself to death. Um, and he was, uh, I think, was he a Yaley? I can't remember, but he, he was kind of the white trumpet player of the day. He was very much, founded on Armstrong. Armstrong was his hero, but, but he still had very much his own voice. So here's a little bit of Vic Spiderbeck singing the blue on a tune called Singing the Blues with the Frank Trumbauer Orchestra. Thank you. 
So this is jazz post Louis Armstrong. It's no longer classic New Orleans group improvisation. It's very much about the solos. Um, by the way, he hasn't quite picked up Louis's swing yet. His, his rhythms are still a little, a little even. And also, this is a such a this is a very slick style. It's very kind of low key. It's not nearly as as raw as as the Ellington Orchestra. And that's. Um, that, that was one of the differences between the white bands and the black bands, basically. Um, I want to, well, let's see, where should we go? I want to do basically some middle Ellington at this point, because Ellington, I think he wrote something like 2000 tunes in the course of his career. And the thing about Ellington, the, the great genius of Ellington, in a technical way was that he unified big band ensemble music with improvisation to create real compositions that included improvisation. And nobody had ever quite done that before. And that became kind of basic to big band jazz. So Ellington was a composer, a real composer. Uh, he didn't just write tunes, he wrote compositions that included improvisers and he had great improvisers in his band like you know people whose names I'm blanking <laughs> uh, and he also had long time uh, people who stayed with him for many years Johnny Hodges his first alto player and and um, uh, various other people by the way somebody asked I saw an interview with Ellington in the on TV in the 60s and he said hey Duke how did you keep these players in this band? together so long, you know, he did with a very straight face. He said, well, you've got to have a gimmick. Keep things together. You've got to have some kind of a gimmick. And my gimmick with my band is I give them money. <laughs> uh, he was very funny and enormously charming. And, and uh, uh, my friend, my cousin, John Bowers, did, a, did an article about Ellington once and, and hung around with him for a long time. But he said it was just, he was an absolute chameleon who would be playing cards with his guys at one point and swearing like a trooper. And then a woman will walk in and he would just, you know, become a completely different person and praise her beauty and so forth and so on. And then he just did this incredible music, a lot of which was barely written down because everything Ellington wrote for his band was written specifically for those players. And they were partly created by those players. A, guy, a trumpet player remembered coming, he was hired by Ellington band, he came in, he was looking at the music and there was nothing there. <laughs> and um, I mean, it's not that Ellington didn't, that all his band read music and they used music a certain amount. Um, in fact, I heard a recording of the Ellington band playing at a high school prom in the 50s when they were desperate for any gigs they could get. And what they were playing was, was these standard charts that I used to play in my high school swing band, exactly the same thing. Wow. So they could read fine, he just didn't bother to a lot of the time. His trumpet player said, there was, no, there was nothing there, he just had to learn it. Wow. Um, and an example, let's find an example, but we gotta go to a different recording. I wanna find, so search on Spotify for Duke Ellington. This is Rockin' and Rhythm. Duke Ellington and his Harlem foot warmers. 
I think this is the 30s, maybe the late 20s. constantly experimenting with new colors uh, in his band. And he's one of the first people to pick up maybe from Debussy using the voice as an instrument, uh, you know, just singing a, a syllable, but the voice is an instrument, but constantly new colors. That's one of it. The integration of compositions that have a beginning, a middle and an end that also involve improvisations. And, um, one of the great example of that, and I want to play the whole piece, is Coco, which is the next track in this recording. Again, this is a composition, and just notice the way it builds throughout. <laughs> Thank you. 
this is one of Ellington's great masterpieces, um, 1945. So this, it was red hot in this period. And the point I wanted to make with this one was just how it's a piece that gathers intensity and momentum from beginning to end. In other words, it's a composition that's completely unified in its structure, in its development, development of motifs. And harmonically, it is, did you notice it is absolutely wild. In his solo, Ellington is playing tone clusters, those harmonies in the brass at the end are insane, even though they still sound bluesy, but they are very complex harmonies. He, you know, Ellington knew what was going on. He knew Stravinsky and Schoenberg and Debussy and Ravel, and he knew how to take ideas from them and put it into his own, um, his own voice. And meanwhile, he's exploring colors, constantly new colors in the ensemble. Um, there's somebody else now. I mean, we spent a lot of time on Ellington, but he's so important and yeah. so tremendously influential. But we can't leave out, um, we can't leave out Count Basie, um, who was who also had a big band that was formed in the in the in the big band era and lasted many many years. He and and Ellington, I don't know how they got along. I think they were probably sort of friendly rivals. Uh, and Basie had just a completely different sound. Let's look around a little bit for some early-ish Basie. Let's try jumping at the woodside. picked up the Ellington integration of big band and, and improvisation and took it in his own direction. So now I want to get sociological a little bit. Again, jazz was 
became a universal American style. One of the things I forgot to say when we were listening to Armstrong and, and Vic Spider back in the 20s was this was a style that was less about 15 years old at the time. And yet it was of, of enormous sophistication and absolute uniqueness. Um, it had developed and deepened that quick. But of course it went on from there. But then there was an absolute racial divide. There was white jazz and black jazz and white bands and black bands. And the question is, when did that begin to get to shake up? The Ellington and Basie bands were completely black from beginning to end. Uh, other bands, uh, you could not really, I don't think, have a big band uh, that was racially mixed in those days. But the pioneer in, in uh, mixing in his, in his combos was Benny Goodman. It was a white clarinet player, very fine, with a very straight-laced image. Um, somebody said that Duke Elling, I mean, that, that Benny Goodman looked like a high school math teacher. Mm-hmm. Um, but some of his bands early on in the 40s had black musicians in them, and he got tremendous heat and probably death threats in the whole schmear for this. Uh, Teddy Wilson, who was one of the great black pianists of the time. And here's King Porter Stomp with, with Benny Goodman. It's number seven on disc one. Here we go. take a break for a second because I looked this up this doesn't have it's in the first place it's a big band and secondly it doesn't have any black musicians though Fletcher Henderson the arranger was arranger was black uh let me see if there's another there's a couple of other Benny Goodman the complete RCA Victor small group recordings well I found some interesting stuff and so what I'm going to want to play is us disc two stomping at the Savoy and the reason is he now has two black players it's not a trio and I want to talk about that so in um the 30s many Goodman started playing with Teddy Wilson who was a great black jazz pianist and then he formed a quartet that was Lyle Hampton on vibes who was black Teddy Wilson 
uh, Benny Goodman and Gene Krupa, one of the one of the greatest and craziest of jazz drummers. Um, and again, this was radical. So at in a movie in uh, 1937 uh, called Stompin' at the Paramount, the quartet with the two black players, the integrated Goodman's integrated quartet is playing. And in for a showing in Memphis, they simply, in Memphis, Tennessee, they simply cut that bit out because they did not want to see anybody, black people and white people playing together. Mm. Lionel Hampton went on to be one of the great vibe players of all time. Teddy Wilson already was there. And uh, this is tremendously important. And again, this is sociology as well as music. And Goodwin was very flexible. He could play and he could play in effect a sort of hotter style like black musicians. And he could also play a more slick style that was more of a white jazz style. He did both and he was a great improviser. So let's listen to a little bit of Stompin' at the Savoy with the, with the Goodman Quartet. This was pioneering um, small combo jazz with intense um, focus on improvisation. And that was gonna have fruit in a quite different direction in the 40s as well. But we, sh we can't leave out um, some soloists uh, and singers. And for me, the ultimate jazz singer was Billie Holiday. The thing about Billie Holiday, she was an impeccable musician, 
But what really made her unique was her ability to get into a song and put it across. It is often said about Billie Holiday that she could take the dumbest song in the world and make it great just by how she did it. And the other thing was that she seemed to mean every word she sang in a very particular way. So um, on Spotify, look for Billie Holiday, track four, What a Little Moonlight Can Do. This is What a Little Moonlight Can Do, and it's a just kind of an up-tempo, cute song with Teddy Wilson and his orchestra that we heard playing with Benny Goodman. Uh, but it's just what she can take with a little dippy song and just make it absolutely memorable. taking a, a popular standard of the day that kind of a nice jumpy little tune and making it something unique. And it's partly unique because she's such a great musician, because even in this, she seems to mean every word she says. And because she's also improvising on the tune all the time, she's making it her own. Now I'm going to get sociological again, because again, this is a period when even the most um, admired and popular black jazz musicians were still facing the most ungodly uh, bigotry all the time. Did they ever fight back? Well, in a way they did, um, but they had to do it very carefully because it was dangerous to do it any other way. Um, one of, the, one of the examples was a tune that Louis Armstrong did uh, called uh, Black and Blue, which was really a song about why am I so black and blue? My only sin is the color of my skin. But the great example of that fighting back in music is Billie Holiday's Strange Fruit, which was based on a, a poem and it's about lynching. Um, and she used to do this she, the lights would go down, there would be a spot on her, and she would do this really and truly unsettling song about lynching. And um, you want to try to follow the words. And I'm not sure, is it on this recording? Yes. Yes, that's number one. <laughs> okay.
blood on the leaves and blood at the root black bodies swinging in the southern breeze strange fruit hanging from the poplar trees part of became part of an ongoing discussion you could say about race in the 40s the beginning of the most serious part of that discussion after the war um now let me here's the question we're maybe running out of time again and we're not at the rate i'm going we're not going to get very far we're not going to make it to the 60s so what do you want to do you want to maybe do another one <clears throat> Or do you want to just say we're going to do up through the 50s or something like that? Uh, that could work. Yeah, I'm, I'm fine with that. You mean just stop at the 50s or so? Yeah, that works. Right? Okay. Now, the next, I was talking about how Benny Goodman's small, small group, uh, small group was influential. And one of the things that happened was that that be played into a new kind of jazz, really the most important development after there was New Orleans jazz and then swing and big band jazz. And uh, in the forties, another kind began to take shape. An important transitional figure I wanna to touch on because he did both sides of this issue, Coleman Hawkins. So search on Spotify for body and soul, Coleman Hawkins. And so uh, this is essentially a long uh, tenor sax improvisatory solo, considered one of the very greatest improvisations in, in, in jazz history. Uh, and Coleman was interested in the new style, but this is sort of uh, in between the, 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 the ongoing style of somebody like Benny Goodman. Uh, and um, 
Billy Holiday, who was very close to Lester Young, the sax player. Here's Coleman Hawkins, who was leading the way partly into the new era. say that Coleman Hawkins and Lester Young, uh, Coleman played mostly tenor sax and Lester Young played alto. I think I'm right about that. Sort of did for the sax what Louis Armstrong did for the trumpet. Uh, and they were both great. They're all great improvisers. Uh, there's a great story about that when they, he was recording it. And in the middle of it, the guy, the recording engineer was sitting there saying, oh my God, this is incredible. And he turned around and the janitor didn't know the recording was about to walk into the studio with his mop and he would have ruined the recording. <laughs> so one of the, one of the absolute classics was saved by the, the recording engineer jumping up and running over and grabbing the janitor. Um, so the next thing was that some musicians, there are various stories about this, most of which some of which are probably apocryphal. What was basically happening is some jazz musicians started messing around with harmony. Uh, and one of the explanations was that these were guys who used to play in sort of after the show jam, private jam sessions. And one of the ways they started getting rid of players who weren't that good was by playing chord changes that were too complicated for them. And then they got, and they did it, the story is that they did it at first as a joke, and then they got really interested in these complicated chord changes and new ways of playing that went along with that and sort of highly energized sort of playing. And that's what came to be called bebop. And the two main figures in early bebop, the three main figures were uh, Dizzy Gillespie, trumpet player, uh, Thelonious Monk, uh, piano player and Charlie Parker, who was a sax player of tremendous brilliance and virtuosity. And you put all those things together and you found, um, and you got bebop. And in, in addition to this kind of just absolutely sometimes insane uh, inner nervous energy of the music. So here's uh, 
the, the, the kind of classic example of that, Charlie Parker Coco. Just look up Charlie Parker Coco on. Uh... Yeah, I think I have it pulled up. Okay. Virtuosity, wildness, and um, a just absolutely hyperbolic mood. That's that's the essence of bebop. And by the way, this is Charlie Parker and Dizzy Gillespie playing this. It's actually Hazy, who the other, some of the other uh, other players were. And by the way, the, apparently the way bebop got its name was that Charlie Parker tended to end his phrases of his tunes and his improvisations by going that up, and people would come up and say, "Hey, play that thing." It was bebop. And that's mm -hmm. um, well, we're running out of time, but I'd still like to do this. Louis Armstrong never really accepted bebop. He didn't like it. He sort of stuck to his guns. Duke Ellington did not really do it either, but he was influenced by it too. Go to Duke Ellington Cottontail. Okay. Actually, the fact is, I don't know if this is Ellington reacting to bebop or if this is one of the tunes by Ellington that was prophetic of bebop. Anyway, this is Duke Ellington, it's, and it's got a very famous uh, sax solo by Ben Webster. And I'll tell you a story about that when we're done. Cottontail, Duke Ellington, 40s. Thank you. 
there you have one of the legendary solos in jazz history, Ben Webster. So I was at I was at a bar in in uh, Chicago with a, a an orchestra conductor friend of mine, and he had a friend who ran a combo and the and the uh, who played combo in this bar, and uh, the sax player who's the leader sat down and he said, oh, by the way, it's Duke Ellington's birthday. What should we do? And I said, why don't you play Cottontail? He said, okay, this is what jazz musicians can do. He went up to his combo and he said, Cottontail and held up three fingers, meaning three sharps, that's the key. And they started playing this, having never played it before, note for note in unison. Wow. This very jazzy, beboppy tune. And then he turned to me and played Ben Webster's solo, note for note in Ben Webster's sound, which was not his sound. <laughs> And I was telling that to a class of mine at the conservatory once, and one of the and one of the guys who was who played jazz was saying, "Oh, that's not that great. Everybody knows that solo. It's one of the first things you learn." That's um, but that's what that's what jazzers can do. Uh, now we're going to get into the next development. We're finally going to make it into the fifties and sixties. Um, Ellington was still going. A lot of these players were still going. Billie Holiday was still going, but declining. And Billie Holiday's last record, uh, what is it, Lady in Satin? She can barely sing anymore, and yet she's still great. It's, it's one of the saddest and most marvelous things. Um, but one of the people who came up in bebop was Miles Davis, trumpet player. And he began, got into, uh, as a soloist. And early on, he connected with a sax player named John Coltrane. And these two guys between them were going to be the leaders of the next generation by and large. Um, so for an example of Miles Davis and John Coltrane together, but this is particularly great because this has Thelonious Monk on piano. Monk was one of the great innovators of piano. He sort of began in bebop and he ended up in a strange world of his own creation. Uh, but this is, this is um, one of the great, this is a quintet that was one of the greats of all time.
So that's one of the great John Coltrane solos. He had a very distinctive kind of steely sound and he was gonna be part of the future. Well, he has the same kind of virtuosity that Charlie Parker did, but it's not really classic bebop. It's a whole, it's, they're going in a new direction. And one of the directions they went in was what, uh, and this in a way was one of the next serious movements after bebop was what came to be called the cool school. So this was a founding, um, uh, album of what can be called a cool school. It was a different kind of improvisation that was not necessarily based on harmonies anymore. It was a more free kind of improvisation. And by the way, this is the greatest selling jazz album of any of all time. It still sells tens of thousands of copies a year. And the first cut out, and this is uh, Miles Davis, John Coltrane, Cannonball Adderley, another great sax player and uh, Bill Evans on piano. So what? So this is kind of free improvisation based on melodic ideas rather than on the harmonies as tr traditionally. Thank you. 
Miles was such a special case because he came up in bebop, but he didn't really have that kind of fantastic virtuosity. And furthermore, he, he had this very funky sound, which is instantly identifiable. That's one of the things about a lot of most great jazz players. It's not just what they're playing that makes them distinctive and recognizable. It's, it's the very sound that that's coming out of the horn that you instantly know that's Miles. First time I heard Miles Davis as a young kid who was mostly into classical music. I said, it sounds like he's playing on blood and scar tissue. Yeah. And he misses notes, but nobody misses notes like Miles. <laughs> this notes become part of the whole thing. And Coltrane had this very distinctive kind of steely sound. So then Coltrane went off on his own. And I want to play really, we're getting to the end of what I mainly know about jazz, which is yeah. quite a while ago. But I want to mention Dave Brubeck because Dave Brubeck was a, was a, uh, was a white pianist who had his own combo. Um, and he, one of the things he did was very interesting and important, though in a sense, it didn't change anything in jazz, is he made a recording called Time Out, an album called Time Out. What, what he did in the album, Rubeck did in the album Time Out was to say, why does jazz always have to be in four beat and four four? Let's find other, you know, and often folk, um, from other cultures, rhythmic patterns, basic rhythmic patterns. So we had seven beat and 12 beat and, and his most famous tune that he, Brubeck ever did is called Take Five, uh, which is in five beat. Uh, and it has a very distinctive thing, but he also managed in this rhythm that's mostly associated with Balkan music. In fact, Balkan folk music. And to make an absolutely, you know, foot stomping, if you have one leg shorter than the other, it helps. Uh, tune that's absolutely memorable. So this is Brubeck Take 5, which I think uh, while we're playing, I'll look up the date. Saxophonist is Paul Desmond, who had a very distinctive, creamy sound. So, since we're getting pretty long, I want to end with one more Coltrane. Um, he bring up um, Giant Steps, Coltrane, Giant Steps. And Coltrane, there's a 2020 remaster, I see. Coltrane in his great era. Um, was exploiting his just phenomenal virtuosity. Um, 
what was sometimes called sheets of sound. <laughs> when I first started listening to it, my brother had Coltrane albums when he was in college. I, I said it sounded like a guy strangling a saxophone. <laughs> um, it, was, it was moving in the direction of a sort of avant-garde style. And having been part of the cool school with, with, um, with Miles Davis, he really started taking things very much in another direction. And this was one of the kind of extreme ends of that, a, a tune called Giant Steps. Like, this is back to jazz based on a, a fundamental harmonic progressions. So you're improvising on chords, but most jazz chords are going along at a rate of about da, 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 da. Their changes are relatively slow. Or a fast jazz chord change might be on every beat at a modest tempo, da, bum, 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 change of chords. In giant steps, the chord, the chord changes are going da, 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 da. And it's absolutely insane to follow this. Well, he brought it into a recording session. The other people hadn't seen it. <laughs> and he had been practicing scales and exercises on these chord changes for years. And he produced one of the most absolutely brilliant and berserk tunes ever. And it really was very influential in a kind of movement in the 60s toward experimental jazz that became wilder and wilder getting into realms of sometimes chaos and Miles Davis was involved in that and John Coltrane was involved in that much freer kinds of improvisation. This is still tied to chords but it is still just wonderfully nuts.
So this was sort of a crazy extreme at the time, but of course this has become a classic that every, essentially every jazz musician who wants to be a jazz musician has to be able to play giant steps. It became part of the essential toolkit of every jazz musician. Um, there's a great description, Tommy Flanagan, who I apparently had never seen these chord changes, is doing pretty well, but he has to play a solo in the middle of this on these incredibly fast changes. And it, a jazz musician friend of mine described Flanagan's solo in this as, help! <laughs> <laughs> I'm making stabs at what sounds like a solo, but I really can't keep up with this thing. Um, one of the great Coltrane's is the old Disney tune, My Favorite Things, which you would not expect him to take up, but he makes a 20 minute masterpiece out of it that's mostly just improvisation over a single bass, bass note. The bass note never changes. Let me, let me ask you something that as, we're, as we wrap this up, um, it seems like the progression we've gone through, there's been a lot of, um, you know, I, I don't know if you'd call it progress. I don't know if there's such a thing as progress in art, but there there are new developments in the history of jazz throughout the entire time span that we've been talking about. What what about now? I jazz can relive its past forever, but does it have a future? I hope so. But I th here are the problems I see. A lot of jazz and Wynton Marsalis, great musician is very much a part of that. He, he has a band who plays things like Ellington tunes and they play them very well. But part of the problem is that it's not Ellington's band. And even if they play the notes very well and good style, it's still not Johnny Hodges. No. <laughs> Paul Gonsalves and so forth. Because the assumption of jazz revivals, various kinds like that, there's been a there, there, you know New Orleans jazz revival mostly white bands playing in early New Orleans style. That started in the 40s. That's been around for a long time. But, but what the part of the problem with what, what Marsalis does with his band playing old big band pieces is that he's basically saying what's important is the notes. This, he says this is America's classical music. I may get in trouble for saying some of this. But the thing is that the notes aren't important in the same way in jazz as they are in classical music. Classical music is based on the fact that this music is written down and everybody basically plays the same notes and then gives them their own interpretation, which is their personality and so forth. But what's important in classical music is the what. What's important in jazz is the how. It's how Johnny Hodges plays this tune that is equally important as the notes and sometimes more important. I think this is true. Um, you can I can put this into rock and roll terms. One of my rock and roll is in a very melodic form by and large. And one of my favorite Beatles tunes has come together, which has no tune at all. Here's the tune. Da 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 tune is the atmosphere, the baseline, the kind of, you know, uh, brooding quality it has, the kind of slow groove that it has, everything about it makes it into a classic. It's not the notes particularly. 
And I think that's true of jazz too, in a way. I mean, what Coltrane is playing on giant steps, the notes are very important, but it's also Coltrane with his sound and his inflections and his inimitable quality that makes that as much, makes that as, much as anything. So I think that's one problem with reviving, revisiting the past, as you said, with jazz. The other problem is a lot of people, a lot of groups in the 60s and 70s particularly really got very much involved in avant-garde kinds of jazz that were very influenced by classical avant-garde music, free improvisation and so forth and so on. And some of that music I'm interested in. But I think the problem is when it gets to a certain point, you start to ask the question is, is that what makes this jazz? Is this really jazz anymore? Or is it some kind of other thing that's a kind of free improvisation that happens to be played by jazz musicians? And I don't know the answers to those questions, except that I think the jazz is too important to, um, to live in the past, but, I, but, but there haven't been movements like bebop and cool school and big band that I know of in a long time. And free jazz in a way was a movement too. Uh, Ornette Coleman played completely apart from chords. I, he got into a kind of freedom that was not totally berserk at all, but it was not, you know, he was another kind of evolution in jazz. But where jazz is heading in the future, I don't know. I mean, uh, there are bitter divisions over when Marsalis is, I think there've been whole books written against Wynton Marsalis. And that's another issue. You know, I saw Wynton Marsalis with his quintet and which included his brother Branford when he was about 20 playing live, absolutely blew everybody away. And it was tremendously innovative as well. It was really quite fresh stuff. And I just said, I worry about this guy because Miles Davis, Charlie Parker, all these people came up playing in clubs for small audiences with small groups where they could experiment and they could grow and they could screw around and they could make mistakes. Charlie Parker famously played a whole set to a piece of bubble gum on the floor at one point. Oh. <laughs> he was down his knees playing the bubble gum. And this kind of atmosphere of the clubs and the experimentation and the experience that that came out of, is what made them who they are, just like the Beatles playing for years in little clubs and in Hamburg and so forth, developed into this incredibly tight band out of that experience when they weren't in the spotlight. That's what I'm getting about. And I'm, I was saying, Wynton Marsalis at age 20, when I heard him with his brother, they're already absolutely in the spotlight. They're famous. How do you develop when you're in the spotlight like that? Right. How do you experiment? How do you fall on your face? And the answer is, I don't think he really did. I, I have not heard, I haven't listened to a lot of Wynton Marsalis, but I'm not sure what I have listened to is any more interesting or maybe as interesting as what I heard him doing with his brother at age 20. And that's a problem with modern media too, that, that if you get a little exposure, then suddenly you have a million hits. And again, yeah. you don't have a chance to screw up and you need a chance to screw up. Yeah. And you become, uh, you can become addicted to the attention and instead of trying yes. to do it organically, you try to replicate past success. Yes. Now, one of the things Marsalis has done is start writing longer pieces in a sort of classical jazz, you know, mode, which is, and he won a Pulitzer for that. And that's great. And that, that has been his own development. It's interesting that Ellington did the same thing in his later life. He started writing suites, which are basically classically 
oriented pieces, but in a jazz style. And they're not his most successful music. I mean, people defend them, but but to me, it's his least interesting music. There's good stuff in it, but it was not his thing. I think Marsalis has been a classical player. You know, he's done both from the beginning. He went to Juilliard, and he does. He's a he's a classical musician as well as a jazz musician. So he's he is part of both traditions. Ellington really wasn't, and I think it showed in his later stuff. Um, but I, I wish jazz the best because I think it's too important to go away. And of course it won't because everything is forever now. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, as a composer, I remind myself that I'll be, my stuff will be around somewhere on the, on, in the airways forever. Yeah. Yeah. Everyone so maybe a little immortality. listen to it in 50 years and say, hey, this is pretty good. Yeah. There you go. Uh, listen, Jan, um, it, it's always a pleasure to talk to you, and I really like doing this. Um, I love jazz, so yeah. I'm glad to be able to look at it through your alert. Uh, through I your did alert. not know that. I'm, I thought you were a rock and roll guy. I'm, I'm, I can do a bit of everything. At some point, we'll, we'll get you into the, the hip-hop scene and the more electronic dance music, but that, that'll, that'll come later. We'll but. see, but I hope <laughs> we can find something else to talk about because I get a kick out of this, too. Okay, good. All right. Um, Great we'll time. See. Thanks. Absolutely. And I'll send you, uh, I'll send you this once it's posted and edited and all that. So. Okay, great. Yeah. I'm, I'll be very interested. Alrighty. Good luck till next time. Sounds good. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Thank you to Jan Swafford and thanks for listening to Dunk Tank. I'm Duncan Gammy. See you next time. <laughs>